Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is John Kotsis, Chief Executive of the Queensland Performing Arts Centre. It's great to have you along today. I really enjoyed my conversation with John. He's somebody that I haven't known for a very long time, but I found his story fascinating growing up in far north Queensland and discovering a passion for the arts at a very early age and listening to how his career evolved over the course of many different avenues and experiences working in banking and working in teaching and obviously now CEO of QPAC. But before I introduce John to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any recruitment requirements within your own organisation, I would welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about how we can help. Let me now introduce to you John. John Kotsis is the Chief Executive of the Queensland Performing Arts Centre in Brisbane, Australia. QPAC is one of Australia's leading centres for live performance, with over 1.3 million visitors attending over 1,200 performances a year. John is also on a number of boards, including being Vice President of the Executive Council of Live Performance Australia and a member of the Griffith University Conservatorium of Music Advisory Council. He holds a Bachelor of Arts and Diploma of Education, and also honorary degree of Doctor of the University from both Griffith University and QUT. John lives in Brisbane. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with John Kotsis. Well, John, welcome to the RHA podcast. It's fantastic to uh, have you along and have a chat to us. Perhaps to begin with, just tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Uh, morning, Richard. Um, I'm, I'm the Chief Executive of the Queensland Performing Arts Centre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, in the history of the Queensland Performing Arts Centre, it's only had three Chief Executives or three... In the legislation, the position's defined as Director... And so in terms of the position, it's, it combines two parts. Mm-hmm. It combines the arts part, which is like um, the, the artistic decisions and the business decisions. That's how it was first formulated. Tony Gould was the first director. And then he, so he had the, the enormous task. He talks about when he started, he had pieces of paper and two pencils in Watkins Place right. and had to oversee the building of the building. Right. And, and just before we get to that... Um, for those people who are unfamiliar with what QPAC is, just tell us a little bit about what the actual business is. Okay. The, the QPAC is the Queensland Performing Arts Centre. Um, so it's, it's the principal, it, it's the leading statutory authority in Queensland for the performing arts. It, mm-hmm. it has a whole set of legislation. It's set up um, as a statutory authority, so it's arm's length from government. It means that government appoints the board and takes the advice of the board in the appointment of the chief executive. Then they give us an appropriation, and, and then 
we we get on with the task ourselves. Our, our act is really quite clear. We're here to manage the growth of the performing arts in Queensland. We also manage this facility, which has four theatres, the mm-hmm. Lyric of 2,000 seats, the Concert Hall, which has, depending on the mode, between 1,500 and 1,800 seats, the Cremorne Theatre, which is about to have a refurbishment, which will come back to about 250, 260 seats, and then we've also got the Playhouse, which is 850 seats. And probably one of the uh, uh, things that we would I'd like to see as a legacy when I'm no longer in this position is the fifth theatre, uh-huh. which we're in discussion with government about, which has will have the capacity between 1,500 and 1,700. Right. And I can talk more about why sure. those, that size later on. Okay. And so you were talking about the original director. Yes. So when are we talking? What, uh... um, so Tony was... The, the centre opened in 1985, uh-huh. and I think Tony was appointed in the late 70s. Right. It was interesting, during the Bjelke-Peterson government time, they appropriated all the land on this side of the river with the vision that they would, big vision that they would actually build a performing arts centre, an art gallery, a library, and um, the the museum, and create a cultural precinct. So you know, some advanced thinking in those days. Mm-hmm. Then Tony was brought on to build the place. Um, lucky enough for me, I, at that time I was the teacher at the local high school. Right. And um, I, I was kind of on the periphery of the arts professionally, even though. Um, I'd been working professionally in the arts, at, but at that time I was teaching, and my first visit to the centre was with Tony and two other teachers to actually walk through the place as it was a construction site. Okay. So I can remember walking through the concert hall and the Lyric Theatre when there were um, uh, foundations in the ground mm-hmm. and had no roof on them. Well, wow, that's interesting time because uh, Expo 88, which... Uh you know, really um, is almost uh, adjacent or adjoining your property, I I imagine that would have been a massive construction site um, around the time that it was just your um, QPAC was opening. The the building was half its current existing footprint Mm -hmm. and the expo site butted right up into the side of the building. Okay. So the building did its formal opening in 1985 with a huge celebration in preparation, that was in preparation for what was going to be Expo 88. Mm-hmm. So QPAC participated in Expo with a really big program called um, The World on Stage. So um, together with Tony Gould, a, a person called Anthony Steele was appointed by the government to, to pull together a program that actually celebrated um, Expo 88. Okay. And that was for the stages. That right. was quite a separate program to what was going on next door in the Expo site. And how did you come to be one of a, you know, a, a couple of teachers walking the pre- premises uh, during the construction period? Well, how did that uh, uh, eventuate for you? A bit serendipitous, really, in that I was teaching in the local high school uh-huh. and the local high school participated. It, the local high school is Brisbane State High School. Right. It has a fantastic um, academic record, artistic record, mm-hmm. and also sports record. And um, t- while I was teaching there, we, the teachers, connected with, with Tony. Okay. Um, coincidentally, I, I taught one, uh, one of his children. Right. And... Um, he, Tony, Tony used to come to some of the artistic adventures that the school would do mm-hmm. and then offered us an invitation to say, right, well, okay, you, sure. you guys look like you're really interested in this. Do you want a tour of the building? Right. And so when I was issued the invitation, uh, I said, um, oh, who's issuing the invitation? And it came back formally, 
the director of the Queensland Performing Arts mm -hmm. Centre, and I asked this dumb question of, is he the engineer that's building it? Right. And um, the question was, no, no, he's the director of the Performing Arts Centre. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, I probably asked the right question because he was the engineer of the imagination of right. what this building was. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. So uh, we segued into this conversation because I was asking you about your current responsibilities and you said you're the CEO, formerly known as the director, yeah. uh, and you're the third yeah. person in the role. So, so Tony was the director who built the building. Then when he retired, the board split the position. And I, I guess it's given you an idea historically because it explains what my position mm -hmm. is. Sure. So they split the role into that of a chief executive and of the artistic director. Um, and they went to market. I, I won the artistic director's position. Mm -hmm. And that position is and was responsible for the programming of the centre and setting the tone and the artistic agenda. When the second director, um, Craig McGovern, resigned um, and I won the position, um, I had the opportunity to put both those jobs back in. Mm -hmm. So I, I see myself as responsible um, for the overall health, welfare and artistic program of the organisation. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that is, Richard, I think it's one conversation. I don't think the business conversation and the arts conversation are separate. Mm -hmm. I think our business is arts and arts is our business. Mm -hmm. so, sure. it's, so it's one conversation. So that's why I kind of amalgamated those Okay, roles. great. Oh, well, I'm very keen to uh, talk more about that a little later in this conversation. And before we uh, go back in time, uh, I understand also that you serve on a number of boards. Yeah. Um, uh, probably the two that I put most time into, locally... Um, I'm on the advisory board of the Queensland Conservatorium of, of Music mm -hmm. um, and I really enjoy that role on the precinct here quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And the other one that I, that I enjoy a lot is I'm one of the vice presidents of Live Performance Australia. Mm -hmm. Live Performance Australia is the peak um, industry body um, for um, uh, 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 the performing arts. Okay. And, and I like my role on that and I like that group of people. It's got a membership of 452 arts bodies, mm -hmm. um, and so we play in the, the sphere of policy and industrial awards and um, the current debate about 457 visas. That's where we will right. manage that conversation from, okay. from that position, from okay, that platform. Fantastic. Uh, so let's uh, go back to where it all began and tell us a little bit about early life, where you were born and mum and dad, brothers and sisters growing yeah. up, etc. I'm one of two children, mm -hmm. um, and I was born in Innisfail. Um, just, that's just a bit south of Cairns. Mm -hmm. I was really lucky because North Queensland at that time was very much a... Um, this was uh, growing up in the 60s, was before mechanisation of the, of the cane cutting. And so it was very influenced by a lot of um, Greek, Italians, and a lot of Southern European migration. Prior to that, there had been a lot of Chinese migration. Mm -hmm. So it was, very, it was growing up in a very pluralist society. My four grandparents come from the same Greek island. Okay. And consequently, it meant that my parents were born here. But it, it, what it meant was we grew up bilingual. Right. And were your parents born in North Queensland yeah, as well? Yeah, both okay. my parents were born in North Queensland, right. 18 kilometres apart, and okay. they came to live in the middle, which, right. I thought, which I thought was very funny. And uh, working in the cane industry? Um, no, Dad Dad was a baker. Okay. And Mum came from a cane farming background. Her mm -hmm. dad was a... Her dad was on a cane farm. Her brother was on a cane farm. Her sister married into a, a cane farming. Right. Um, yeah, but mum came to live in, in, in the little village where we grew up. Uh-huh. Um, and um, the other thing about that place was there was a lot of culture, 
in terms of people celebrated the, within their own ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. But also there was, um, there was a choral society, there was a repertory company, and there was also a lot of strong choral singing. Okay. And so it was quite common for mum to take me to see production. So my interest in um, the performing arts was really fostered at a very early age. Okay. And that was pre-television, and often we would go, Dad and I'd go to the movies sometimes twice a week, mm-hmm. and we as a family would always go once a week. Mm-hmm. So right from the age of four, I imagined I would be a producer. So I, I kind of, for me, I always had that, that creative um, bent. I, I wanted to be a producer. It's interesting, and uh, you know, a lot of people would say from that age I wanted to be a, an actor or a musician or a director. Being Choosing the role of producer at a young age is you know, probably uh, a lesser um, common choice. Yeah. What was it about the role of producer that attracted you? I, look, at that time, Richard, I didn't quite understand what the role was. Right. But, but growing up in the way I grew up, we used to have to do lots of things in public. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew straight away that being an actor was not, you know, my, my grandfather would make me recite poetry for people that came around. And <laughs> you'd get to a point where you go, oh, I hate doing this. Right. And so, so I, I kind of liked the idea that you're a little bit more behind the scenes and you're putting all the things together. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, your parents uh, worked in the bakery while you were going to school, etc.? That's right. right. Da- Dad um, worked in the bakery and then um, he sold that and then became a fireman. All right. And then um, later on sold that and then went to work, particularly in the early days of the Vietnam War. Um, there, was a, there was a tropical trial unit just mm-hmm. outside of where we lived at, at um, Cowley Beach and the, um, the CSIRO and the Army were there mm-hmm. and so Dad went to work there for a while. In what capacity? Um, I don't know, really. Okay. Like, not as a scientist or anything. Right. I, th- I, I think like as a general labourer. Okay, I mean, sure. he, he kind of loved it. I don't know what, what went on down there. Right. But, you know, I was a bit too young to kind of get it all. And so uh, when you were going through your high schooling, that was still up in Innisfail? Yeah. Were you working part-time or anything like that? Look, I got a part-time job um, at the local shop, um, which which was good fun. And it was was what you'd imagine now is a 7-Eleven. Right. So so it was a corner store. Mm -hmm. It was owned by a Chinese couple and it sold everything, you know, from newspapers to milk. And every morning my job was to go down to the shop and um, clean out the freezer, clean out the milk, I used to hate the smell of stale milk and um, you know um, just clean it up and then go to school and then come back in the afternoon and do do odd jobs Um, yeah like growing up there was really interesting we didn't get television till because North Queensland was a long way away you know from and so the the closest television station to us was um, Townsville Mm -hmm. and um, anyone north of Townsville you're very lucky to actually get a picture. And so for a lot of people who had televisions, you'd sit there and look at, at snow, you mm-hmm. know, like, like, like um, white noise, mm-hmm. and that was the closest thing to television. But when, we did, when they did eventually build a um, repeater station on Mount Ballanton Kerr, my parents bought a television in 1969. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, end of 68, 69, the day before I started year nine in 1969, I was lying on the couch watching a documentary um, called Shakespeare on Wheels, and it was about a Brisbane theatre company that had put together a company of actors and with a number of plays, and they hopped on the train and they took it up and down the coast. Right. And 
it was interesting because I remember some of the faces that were in that documentary mm -hmm. and the very next day I went to school and one of the faces that was hanging out of the train being a Yahoo turned out to be my year nine English teacher. Oh. And so it, that was an actor called Robert Arthur. And so I had Robert as an English teacher from 69, 70, 71 and 72. Mm -hmm. And he probably was the, the most significant influence in my um, arts experience in, at an early stage, he took the, the attitude that the best way to understand literature was through the performing arts mm -hmm. and to perform it. Mm -hmm. So Robert started me on a um, what I call a long apprenticeship from when I was 14 till I was about 27. An apprenticeship as a, uh, an aspiring producer. Yeah, well, well, I didn't even use the term at first. Right. See, I joined the theatre company and you joined us like... Um, you know, like you went to school and yeah. in your spare time you joined the theatre company and you did whatever odd jobs was there. So right. you, learnt, you learnt to page this, paint the stage, you learnt some early way... Early marketing was done, the posters were made as Romeo sheets, mm -hmm. so we used to learn to do all those sorts mm -hmm. of... And whatever job was around, we did, until we progressed and got older. Mm -hmm. And then we got to read parts on stage, then we got to act parts on stage... And I was very bad at that. Right. So I quickly I thought, I love this work, but I have to do something else. Mm -hmm. and, and so did you stay at high school right through to grade 12? I went, I, went, I, I went right through to grade 12 when, in those days, most people left at year 10. Mm -hmm. But I didn't matriculate. I left school about two weeks before the final exams because um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I left school and I went to work in Miller Miller in the cheese factory mm -hmm. um, as a labourer. Mm -hmm. And I worked there for about oh, 10 weeks and I saved enough money to come to Brisbane. Right. And when I came to Brisbane, I came and lived with my grandmother. I used to do part-time work at, you know, voluntary work at Le Bois Theatre, which mm -hmm. was, you know, um, in Hale Street. And eventually I got a job in a bank. And um, when I got that job... Um, I, I really enjoyed it because it allowed me to have a bit of money and go mm. to the theatre and do things like mm. that. And then eventually the cyclone happened in Darwin and I went to Darwin. What was that, 74? The, the, so just 74, beginning of 74. Yeah. The cyclone happened in Darwin and I went to Darwin mm -hmm. um, as part of the bank's reconstruction team. Right. I could speak Greek, I was a ledger examiner and I was beginning to understand mm -hmm. lending. And at that time... Was your heart still very much in a career within the arts or you were enjoying working in commerce? The, the idea, the, the, the day job really get, kept me in money. Right. I used to do part-time work at, at um, La Boite and do other things. Mm. I did a bit with street arts who were based here in West End. And when I went to Darwin, Brian Nason, who had been one of the other significant people in, the, in my formative life as part of um, growing up in the arts gave me a couple of letters of introduction to people in Darwin Theatre Company. And so okay. I, I made the transition to in the bank to Darwin, but also right. stepped right into the art scene up there, the performing arts okay. scene as well. So Darwin was not go up for a few weeks and help out. It was a, a, it was a, a, a semi-permanent move. Yeah, it was a full-time job. And I, right. think, I think I was there right up until the end of 75 when... The, the interesting thing about Darwin was the performing arts was really interesting. Mm. Um, um, there was a lot going on. Um, Darwin had been so um, devastated by Cyclone Tracy. Its previous population was about 45,000 and it had been reduced by the time I got there to 5,000. Wow. And so over the next 18 months, 
the population grew quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, we used every weekend when I, when I wasn't actively involved in the um, performing arts was to go to Kakadu and spend time in Kakadu. And the, that, that was a whole other trip. Right. But there was an, the thing, interesting thing about being there was there was nowhere to spend any money. Mm-hmm. Right? And so whether I did it consciously or subconsciously, I did a lot of reading and I saved enough money not to work for three years. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, what do I do? So I returned home in, at the beginning of 1976 to Innisfail, to Innisfail yeah. and went back and did a year, years 11 and 12 in one year okay. with the intention to go on to university. Right. So that was, that was pretty... The, that was challenging for some members of my family to go, why would you give up a good job? Right. Not my, but not my dad yeah. or my mum. They, they thought that... If I was really was invested in a good education, that mm. was a good thing to do. Mm. And out of interest, uh, you said you're one of two children. Yes. Do you have a brother or? A... I, I have a younger sister. Sister. And yeah. so, what was um, where was she at in terms of her career at this stage? Um, she she was living at home, mm-hmm. and uh, by the time I came home, she's a couple of years younger than me. She was just starting to work locally okay. in, in in a whole range of different okay, things. Okay, sure. And she'd met a, a a guy that she was interested in getting married to. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was it was an interesting time to be at home. Right. And so when you came back and did that eleven twelve, uh, with the intention of going to university, would you have been the first in your family or extended family to ever go to university was that all um, on, not on my dad's side because uh-huh. on my dad's side um, a couple of his cousins one of his cousins had gone on and done pharmacy and okay. has that person George Cotsis has been a really big influence in my uh, right. my, my life because he he's a very creative person both in the performing arts and the visual arts mm-hmm. and had a really strong focus on building a family and a career right. but also being steeped in 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 the arts yeah you know well it's interesting uh, you know this idea of uh, uh, back in traditional cultures it wasn't enough to just have a career or be an artist or um, uh, you were expected to be a multifaceted person this whole idea of the renaissance person was very much around uh, you know understanding that a bit of science and a bit of arts and a bit of commerce and and so on and so forth. That that's what was really fascinating about growing up in the sixties in North Queensland. Mm. Um, I, I mentioned before that there was actually a lot of um, itinerant migrants who came from southern Europe to work in the cane industry. So to work in the cane industry for during the cane season, then they'd move to Griffith and Fruit Prick and then come back. And mm-hmm. that's it. But what was fascinating about a lot of those people is that they were multi-skilled and so it wasn't, wasn't uncommon that at least every three weeks there'd be a local dance pulled together in our town mm-hmm. and, you know, it'd be a dance where all the music was made. Right. So, you know, there'd be Greek dances where you'd have four or five hundred people turn up to a local hall and, um, you know, I don't know who organised but you'd, I'd never know as a kid who was making the music until you got there. And then there'd be a person on a guitar and a violin. There might be a violin and a mouth organ and a, and a, um, uh, a piano accordion. Yeah. Um, and it, it was just a very good lesson that that music was always there. The other interesting thing was my grandfather had lost his leg. And so he had his leg cut off, so he had one leg. Mm-hmm. So he didn't do... Um, a, he did a lot of walking during the day, but not at night. Mm-hmm. 
and his friends would visit him at night and they all and he lived next door and when they'd visit him they'd visit him you know somewhere between not not early evening but mid evening and they'd start making music right so my father, my grandfather was a cantor in church so he sang uh-huh. a bit but a lot of musicians would come you right. know, and, and they were all tradesmen or or they had other jobs and they'd sit around and play music to, they had to, a jam session they'd have a jam session yeah. and so going to bed at night because we live next door mm-hmm. was quite common to hear a, lo- a lot of music being played right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent and so you did your 11 12 in one year yep. and what happened after that well i um got my dream come true i graduated uh, i, I um, got the entry to um, um Griffith University, yeah, and I went to do modern Asian studies. Okay, and so I was out at Nathan. Out at Nathan, I was right. in the third intake at Griffith. Yeah, in nineteen. So my first year was nineteen seventy-seven. Okay, there was, um, and at that stage, Nathan was a very fresh campus. Yeah, and I was only one of a thousand students. Wow. Yeah, I studied there. I went in eighty-six, and even back then. You're driving out through the bush thinking, yeah. where's this university? Yeah. I can't even imagine what it must well, have been it, like then. It was fabulous architecture. See, the, the architect was Gibson, mm. you know. And the other interesting thing about that site was you'd walk all around the site and there'd be all these trees with rings around them, right. plastic rings around them. Then those trees had been identified as ones that couldn't be damaged. As uh-huh. part, as, so the building happened around the tree. Yes, there was clearing, mm. but the, where possible they kind of... Um, um, kept the, the, the as much landscape as possible. But, you know, modern Asian studies was really fantastic for me. Um, and the other schools that were around really fed my learning and, fe- you know, the, the School of um, Humanities, the School of Science and the School of Environmental Science. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it was really um, and did you great that degree? Um, I did a year at Griffith. Then I went from there to do an honours degree at um, Queensland Uni. Uh-huh. And finished that. And what uh, degree was that? Um, uh, an arts degree. Uh-huh. And I and uh, my majors were in history and politics. Okay. Then I went back and and through all that time I was in and out of the theatre company. Yeah. But when I finished my degree, I went back formally and started working with the with the theatre company again. Yeah, in your as a full time profession. As a full time profession. And, and in what capacity? Um, at that stage, I came back as a production manager, producer kind of person. Okay. Yeah. And um, got my first. Um, and at that stage, got the first grant that I ever got um, was for six thousand dollars. Right. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, it was interesting to get that sort of money. Okay, fantastic. And how long were you there for? Um, just over a year. Uh-huh. And, um, I d- I did that for a while, and um, I did a number of projects with them. Um, we did a really big production of The Tempest in Townsville, where we were um, um, four professionals. And we drew on, on an amateur um, casting of up to another sixty, mm-hmm. and we built the uh, the production. Okay, there. that was that was a fantastic gig. Right. And just before that, we um, three of us, there were four of us in the, the core members of the theatre company, the Grin and Tonic Theatre Crew. Mm-hmm. We um, went. Um, Brian Nason was the director, and so he directed this show where we went into schools, and then stayed behind in North Queensland to prepare for The Tempest, which we did in Townsville. Mm-hmm. And while we were on the theatre tour, we, we did a whole lot of schools in Queensland, and then we went into New South Wales. And while we were in New South Wales, um, I was lucky enough to be in Sydney when uh, the Peter Brook Theatre Company was there. 
Um, it's interesting how touring in Australia happens and serendipitous things happen. Um, um, before these centres were... Now, today, we, we take work that tours from one city to the next mm -hmm. as... as a, a, taken for granted mm -hmm. but the touring circuit really didn't exist mm -hmm. and um, JC Williamson's was the company that used to tour and then when they kind of folded there was no touring agency as such but work used to come in through the Perth Theatre Festival because of a great artistic director um, David Blankensop and he'd bring them to Perth and then they would get hived out to other cities to pay for parts of their tour. And it was never as a formal arrangement. So just coincidentally, I happened to be in um, Sydney when the Peter Brook Theatre Company was in Sydney. And in one week, we would go to work in the morning, go to perform in school. So you'd get up at five in the morning, go into schools, you'd be ready to start at nine o'clock. We'd finish by two, three o'clock, packed up, and then gone back. Then we go to a performance of the main company mm -hmm. um, at 7 o'clock, 7 or 8 o'clock. Then when that performance had finished, one or two of the performers would go and do a one-hander at the Nimrod Theatre, which would start at about 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Right. So you'd go and see that. That wouldn't finish till 2. You'd go and lay down for three hours, then you'd get up and go to work. So I had about seven days where I saw some of the best theatre I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I made this decision that if I couldn't work at that level, I didn't want to do it anymore. Right. So I stopped working for in the performing arts for a while, mm -hmm. and that's when I decided to throw all my energy into teaching. Right. And was it that work you'd been doing going into schools that inspired the thought that teaching would be a good career for you? Very, very much. Right. Okay. Very much. And you came back and did that in Queensland. And then, so I came back, and um, I, I at that stage I only had my first degree. I didn't mm -hmm. have a teaching degree, mm -hmm. so I went back to uni and did a. Um, a um, Diploma of Education, mm -hmm. and um, at that time, um, the two teaching majors I had was English as a Second Language right. and um, History. Okay. Uh, um, and I was lucky enough, you know, in the, by that time it was the late 70s, Australia had just accepted a huge, Fraser was the Prime Minister, and Australia just accepted a huge intake of Vietnamese migrants, and a lot of them were living out of the Waikol... Um, it wasn't a detention centre, but it was a um, a, a migrant centre. Okay. And um, so people lived there, right. and there was a school there. Mm -hmm. And we used to teach there during the day, um, English language classes. And it wasn't academic English as such. It was functional English to help people find mm -hmm. employment. Mm -hmm. And so I loved that. that right. Was, that was fantastic. And uh, so how long did you remain a teacher? Um I did at Waco for a while, then I went to Brisbane State High School where I taught for eight years. So all up I taught, taught for about nine and a bit years. Right, and what were you teaching at State High? Um, well, mainly I was teaching history and English, mm -hmm. and the reason for sending me to State High was because of my ESL training, mm -hmm. and because I was bilingual in Greek, mm -hmm. was to introduce Greek as a language at mm -hmm. State High, okay. which I did do. Wow, fantastic. And during that period, were you involved in any way in the performing arts, or you had a well, complete break? Well, it was interesting. For the first couple of years, I did a few little things, but I didn't, I didn't really immerse myself in it, mm -hmm. and um, I didn't want to be involved in the school in the performing arts. Okay. I really, really... And um, I got a call from from my old theatre company, from Robert Arthur and Brian Nason, saying, mm -hmm. will you come back in the school holidays and do a production? Which 
I didn't want to do, but I did, which was a great thing. So we did a production of Romeo, uh, no, of Othello mm-hmm. at um, um, La Boite, mm-hmm. and then we took that to the Sydney Festival. Okay. Um, and uh, um, as a result of that, one of the teachers at the school saw it and said, uh, um, why, why are you hiding this? Um, why don't you get more involved in the performing arts? And I did. Right. Uh, yeah. And so uh, when you left State High, uh, to sort of segue back to the beginning of the story, you, um, you were a teacher, you were having a tour of the facilities. Yeah. Did you leave to come immediately to QPAC or was there something in between? No, no. Um, I had no, at the, when I was getting the tour of the facility, I had no idea that I'd work here, nor did I have any, any inclination that I wanted to work here. Mm-hmm. But after the set had been built and after Expo had finished, um, there, a, a position came up here as the education officer. And Tony Gould, who's the first director, said to Judith McLean, who was my head of department at um, State High, why doesn't John think about this? And so what it allowed me to do was, in hindsight, was put together the two things that I loved, teaching and the arts. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's interesting, Richard, Careers don't make sense when you're looking forward. Yeah. They only connect when you're looking backwards. Well, I, see, it, it, uh, I think that's a very good point. Mm. And I uh, was talking uh, to a junior chamber of commerce function last week about to young under 30-year-olds about managing their career, etc. And I was saying I've probably done close to 100 of these podcasts now. Some of people have had very clear, defined career goals. They know where they want to be, they know the trajectory, they know the qualifications, etc. Other people, it just kind of happens. Well, and uh, I don't think that either is right or wrong. Yeah. And it seems that there's almost a fairly even number of people with a foot in each camp. The arts, particularly with the arts, you know, like if, if, if you think about and you want to be in the arts now, you know, as a practitioner, um, then you have to think of yourself initially as in small business mm. and you're responsible for your own business. Mm-hmm. No one's going to create a pathway for you. There is no clear pathway. Mm. You have to create your own pathway. Probably one of the most influential um, things I ever heard um, when I was doing my um, diploma of education was the final passing out lecture where we, where we were given our quote. And the guy who was speaking, I can't remember his name, said, the challenge for all of us as teachers was, was to be vectors of change. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that as a young fella, that was the most fantastic opportunity. Mm. Not, not that you should change, change the world for change's sake, but, but if you have a strong sense of social justice and you have a strong sense of what's right, then you have an opportunity to put some of that into practice. Mm-hmm. And certainly with teaching, you have the opportunity to work with, with a whole broad range of, of the community to actually create... Um, um, opportunities for other people to grow mm-hmm. and I loved that mm. and one of the things that I love about the arts is that that when you embrace the arts they give you the arts themselves give you the opportunity to, to walk in someone else's shoes mm-hmm. and in doing that you get you, you know you expand your mind you become a better person mm-hmm. and you see the opportunities to help others great and so you originally came over to um, QPAC in this education-related role. Yep. And, and how did your career evolve from there? Um, well, it's interesting because I, I got to produce... I talk about my apprenticeship prior to coming here because it seemed like everything was about 
um, and I, I don't want to put it in um, bragging terms, but it, almost like everything that I'd done prior to coming to QPAC mm-hmm. was about preparing me for this job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a couple of books out there, Zed and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, right Zed and the Art of Archery, and mm-hmm. particularly with Zed and the Art of Archery, you practice and you practice and you practice, you draw the bow and you fire the arrow, you draw the bow, you draw the bow, and eventually when you let the arrow go, you don't question whether it's going to hit the bullseye. Mm-hmm. It hits the bullseye every time. Mm. So that's kind of the attitude I took to my work. I don't do things for any reason other than to be successful. Mm-hmm. Everything we do, um, I, I insist on being successful. So the only way to be successful is to define what the success is, aim for it, mm-hmm. and hit it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you know one of the great things in this role and why I love working in teams is we get the opportunity to project what we want the end goal to be. Mm-hmm. And then you go, okay, what does success look like? You're doing a production, you identify what the budget is, you identify what the attendance figures are, you identify what the artistic qualities are, and then you go, okay, they're three of the things that we must hit if we're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that. I, I love that. And so all of this preparedness and uh, your... Uh, desire to succeed by you know practicing firing your arrow you know countless times uh, enabled you to come into QPAC and then uh, I imagine your role evolved into its current role of that's right executive. So, so what so coming here then I got to produce a number of shows mm-hmm. which were which received a number of really great um, awards and that was within the context of your education that was that, that was within the yeah, wow. yeah. so um, w- which and then the organisation went, hang on a minute, uh, this guy looks like he can deliver, mm-hmm. so they gave me more opportunities. Then at the beginning of 1990, I was asked to consider what would it take to create a, a special festival for children under the age of eight. Mm-hmm. And so and we, out of that conversation, for the next 18 months, we then prepared ourselves to deliver the first children's festival which became Out of the Box. And so uh, I led the team that delivered the first out-of-the-box festival in 92. Mm-hmm. Which has gone on to be very successful. Yes, and then it went on to... Then I did the second one in 94 and consolidated it. Mm-hmm. And, and um, y- you know, at that, at, those stage, at that stage, the work we were doing was seen as the leading work in the world, certainly in Australia and the world, in terms of children's festivals. Mm-hmm. And what was fantastic about that was it allowed me to bring all my education experience and classroom experience into a performing arts world. Mm-hmm. You know? um, not, not, that, not the performances should be seen as lectures, but the <clears throat> when you go to the art gallery uh-huh. and you see a, a work, it's painted by the painter and it's definitively finished. Apart from the lighting you can put on and the way you hang it, mm-hmm. right? it's how you view it and wh- what, what connects with you, the audience. In the performing arts, it's very different. You know, the work is not finished. It's ephemeral. The work is being made in front of you, the audience. So where does the art happen? Mm. You know, like, like the performing arts, a, perf- a production is like a moving installation on stage and you, the audience, are sitting in the audience. Where does the art happen? Mm-hmm. I think the art happens somewhere between you, the, the receiver of, the, uh, 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 of what you're seeing, 
between you and, the, and in that void between you, the audience, and what's happening on stage. And so one of the great things about um, being a producer and why, what I loved about those festivals is it got me the chance to play with... It's not just about how you prepare work for the stage, it's also how you prepare audience to receive it. Mm-hmm. That, that's the other great thing for me. Mm-hmm. And was that something that you felt you instinctively understood and it was a self-realisation or was that an awareness of what uh, others had perceived and you were drawing on their inspiration? Wow, that's a great question. But I think it's both, Richard. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if you're committed to lifelong learning and ongoing learning, then, then irrespective of what... I believe irrespective of what age we are, we are improving our ability to do what we do better. Mm-hmm. And so it's a constant improvement. So it's about reading, it's about practice, it's about reflection, it's, it's about doing it and doing it and doing it better, you know? So, John, at what point do you think it became part of your vision to personally aspire to be a chief executive? Well, after I did the the, um, Out of the Box Festival, um, and I didn't want to... I I felt like... The second Out of the Box Festival, I felt like I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. And Tony Gould, who, again, a great influence on me, I told him that I wanted to leave the centre... And he said, look... To leave. To leave, okay. yes. I, I felt like I was exhausted and wanted mm-hmm. to do something different. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, don't leave. Why don't you just take two years' leave of absence and I'll guarantee you a job, don't know what job, I'll right. guarantee you a job in two years' time. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a fantastic opportunity. You know, like, there was a great safety net. Mm-hmm. I knew that in two years' time I'd have a job, you know. I, by that stage I had a family, I had, you know. Um, um, so I went, up, went off and headed up Warana and stumbled into being a chief executive. Okay. Um, and when I got there, you know, I was so eager to leave this place. When I got there, I hadn't done an audit, I hadn't done anything, and I walked into a situation where they'd spent all of next year's money this year. When you say you haven't done an audit, so you hadn't done the due diligence. I hadn't done any right. due diligence okay. about the role right. going into it. So I got there, and the, the organisation... Was had a strong reputation, but its capacity, both financially and artistically, mm-hmm. was void. Right. right. And so, you know, um, I, I often use that example in terms of the learnings of that time, and that mm-hmm. was like, that was back in 95. Um, uh, I, the learnings, Bob Dylan in one of his poems, um, Love Minus Zero, No Limit, has this fantastic line where he says, um, there's no... Um, there's no success like failure, and failure's no success at all. Mm-hmm. So, so in the first year and a half of Warana being there, with having come from a really well-managed organisation like this, mm. into a situation that we just had to make it work, mm-hmm. um, was a really big and steep learning curve. Sure. You know, so we so after we got through the first year, we rebadged it as the Brisbane Festival, and that's mm. where the Brisbane Festival came from. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that was a two-year. That was a two. Year, that was a two-year stint as a chief executive. Right. And that's where I learnt everything, mostly not to do as a chief executive. Okay. So when I came back here, and the role came up as a chief executive, um, I was a little bit. While I was concerned, while I was excited by the possibility. I was also frightened by the opportunity. Right. I suppose um, uh, even though you'd been a CEO previously, I imagine uh, in considering stepping into this role, you would have done some kind of 
internal inventory of your skills and capabilities, etc. What, what did you see as the areas where you needed to really invest in yourself in order to make that transition successfully? Okay. Prior to that, prior to that, most of my focus had been around being a really good producer, being a really good curator, and pulling together a really good program. Mm -hmm. So I could run projects what I learned at the festival was to run a business mm -hmm. and so I had that skill I had to learn to run a to run a business better mm -hmm. so yeah I had to be much more rounded I had to have a better understanding of finance I had to have a better understanding of what what leadership meant in terms of a whole team and you know I was one of those kind of self-centered people probably am still a little, <laughs> where I thought that if you're a programmer that's all that mattered. Right. And so that everything else was a function, you know, you were a functionary of the centre. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, that's not correct, you know. Um, while programming is one of our core businesses, everybody who works here helps to prepare the audience for the interaction mm -hmm. that is their artistic mm -hmm. experience. And I don't just say this, I actually mean it. There's no one job more important than the next. Mm -hmm. You know, we are part of a team that must if it's going to deliver at the, the level that we want it to deliver at, we've all got to, we've all got to pull our weight. Mm -hmm. And so now, almost 10 years in the role as CEO, mm -hmm. what would you look back on over that period as some of your key achievements that you're most proud of? One of the great things that I learned from my first chairman as a chief executive back in the Warana days was, mm -hmm. it was a great visionary for, for the state called um, Trevor Redcliffe. And, and he taught me that the most important relationship that any chief executive has is with their chairman. Mm -hmm. And that that relationship sets the tone of, of the organisation. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was a fantastic lesson to learn. So I think it's really important, irrespective of what level of chief executive you're at, the relationship with you and the chairman and you and the board is what sets the tone for the organisation. A board ultimately only has two things to do when you understand it, to set the policy and direction of the organisation and that of appointing the chief executive. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a chief executive who doesn't accept that, then you're in for a world of hurt. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you embrace that as your, the first part of what you do, then, then really that sets up your executive to deliver the rest. Mm -hmm. And so it's about learning the, deline the delineation of the roles. One of the problems with, with being in an organisation and being promoted up, like there's a number of us in this organisation that have grown up from the floor, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You take bits of your last job into your next mm -hmm. job and that's one of the real problems that you've kind of got to learn to overcome. You know, like the job that you were doing yesterday, if you're a new job today, is not the job you should be doing today. You mm -hmm. know? And, and, and once you master that, you realise that when you're in your new job, you know, like... Being the chief executive is very different from being a producer, and you've got to have, you've got to understand what the producer's perspective is, but also have a really clear understanding of what's the overall intent of the organisation, where's it going, and where does this piece of work fit in relation to that, you know, the overall vision, you know. And so, what are some of the things in looking towards the future? I mean, uh, uh, you mentioned right at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, there's some refurbishment happening and you're hoping part of your legacy is a new theatre and so on. Yep. But when you look to the future of QPAC, um, and then we'll talk about your career secondly, but in relation to QPAC, what are the things that you're excited about? 
Oh, the opportunities, you know, Richard, the opportunities. You know, when you look at this institution is now 35, 36 years old. Mm-hmm. These, these, these fantastic concrete walls are going to be here in the next couple of hundred years. Yeah. What we are laying is the foundation of what is a fabulous organisation. Mm-hmm. Any contemporary public institution needs to do three, three things. It needs to have a relationship with the locals... It needs to have a national profile and connect nationally and have an international reputation. Mm-hmm. And those three things you have to address all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and while you're doing that, as part of a public institution, you also need to, to be a leader and you need to also reflect the community for which you serve. So if you take the positioning of the organisation internationally, serving your local community and trying to be a, a, a leader, with uh, an institutional leader within this country, that's a pretty big bloody job. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah, yeah. And so are there particular things that you're looking forward to that are evidence of the fact that, you know, those goals are being achieved? Well, yes, I'm really excited because, you know, if, if, if when I took this job, I did some back-of-the-envelope maths and mm-hmm. thought, you know, the best attendance we would ever get is probably about 800,000. Mm-hmm. We're now at 1.3 million. That's uh, per annum. Per annum. Right. 800,000 800, per annum. Right. Now we're at 1.3 mm-hmm. million per annum. Okay. We're doing, you know, between 1,200 and 1,500 performances a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we see ourselves as a business that works seven days a week, 365 days of the year. Um, the two days that other people have off, you know, we, we're very respectful of Christmas and very respectful of Good Friday yes. and Anzac Day, but we still try to squeeze the juice out of them as well. Sure, you know? yeah. Um, and I love that, that playing with the formula of what the institution is. You know? mm-hmm. um, yeah. And uh, in terms of your own career, I mean, almost 10 years uh, in uh, your current role, although no doubt lots of change and lots of growth over that period, when you look to the future for yourself personally, what are you excited about achieving professionally? To do what I do better. Okay. Within the context of QPAC? Look, I, yeah, I, look, I'm not ready to leave just yet, mm-hmm. you know, and it's within the context of QPAC. Mm-hmm. People say, why have you spent so much time? I've spent nearly 27 years here. Because I believe the arts actually serve the community the arts are best served, and this is just my my experience. Mm-hmm. Are best uh, the arts are best served when they serve the community within the, which they exist. Right. So I have had a number of offers to go and work in other places, mm-hmm. but you know, this peninsula, this this bit of Queensland, um, this is my home. And, well, it's and pretty I like fantastic. Yeah. Looking out the window today, uh, yeah. I mean, the weather's absolutely superb. Yeah. We've just literally had our Easter weekend and. Uh, it was amazing. But I imagine, you know, in this industry and um, the world is your stage, you know, to use a bit of a punner, it's very much an, an international workforce and it's very much a skill set that gets transferred uh, all around the globe. Um, uh, I imagine part of your role is engaging with that international community as well. We, it, it is, and, um, you know, both at a leadership level and at a leadership in terms of where the arts are heading, mm-hmm. but also in terms of a presentation format. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at you know a really large part of our business at the moment, I call it business because it's it's as much about the arts as it is about the business. Is music theatre? Mm-hmm. We draw on the stages of West End and. Um, uh, um, um, Broadway all the time. More, mm-hmm. Almost half our repertoire comes from that. And the other really big part of it is the international series where we bring those companies 
that we identify as being outstanding exclusively mm-hmm. to Brisbane. Mm-hmm. I love putting those two things together. Mm-hmm. And I note also that uh, you're quite passionate about supporting the Indigenous art Oh, look, we have a unique opportunity here in Australia, and particularly here in Queensland. Queensland has two Indigenous cultures, you know, with a huge history of, of, of performing and, and the arts. And the, the sooner we learn to untap that and share that, mm. then it's, it's, you know, it's just one of the great learnings that we all have of the country. Mm-hmm. We, all, we, we all, in some way or other, want to belong, mm-hmm. right? And what the Indigenous community have learned to do is to understand their relationship of belonging to the land. Mm-hmm. You know, what the arts help the rest of us do, or well, all of us do, is, is to understand how we belong together, how we form communities, and, our place of, and the place of those communities in the greater landscape mm-hmm. of, of the world. I imagine you must have seen massive change in that regard from being in Darwin in the early 70s to now. Yes. Uh, just... Uh, uh, the engagement and the just inclusion of Indigenous artists as part of our everyday life must have transformed unbelievably. And growing up in North Queensland as well, mm-hmm. to see that, you go, you know, it's a fantastic transition. You know, from the likes of seeing a single singer-songwriter, singer-songwriter like an excellent singer-songwriter like William Barton on the mm-hmm. Didgeridoo, to Bangara, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then you look at the work of NASA, the National Performing Arts Academy, or, or, or um, um, uh, the local um, Indigenous um, groups. Um, if, if we can play a part in helping them grow, mm-hmm. um, I think that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So I've just seen your chair walk in, and I imagine that uh, he'll be keen to catch up with you. So just to sort of round out the conversation, John, you know, the majority of people who listen to this are aspiring CEOs or non-executive directors who are very keen to learn from those who've walked the path before them. I mean, you've shared some of your key insights that have shaped your career, but were you to distill, you know, a, a few key points of wisdom, what would you say? I think networks are really important. One of the things that you're never taught, you hear about it, mm-hmm. but you don't understand, is that leadership is lonely, mm-hmm. you know, and there's certain decisions and the, the ruminating of those decisions as you're making them, you can't actually share them with your immediate team. Mm-hmm. So you need to have sounding boards outside the organisation. Sometimes that's your chair mm-hmm. who's in the organisation. Sometimes it's outside. And it's that network that you could develop is, is a really important part of your long-term mental health mm-hmm. and also your long the longevity of your own survival because you go to another fellow CEO and you go, what do you think about this idea? Mm. And not always go to the same person and they go, oh, that sounds stupid, you know. Yeah. Like, or, but, but generally in your own network, no one will be that blunt with you. Mm-hmm. They'll couch it in terms. So, so being open to ongoing learning and having a great network mm-hmm. I, I think is really good. And also um, being prepared to understand that sometimes that mentors are already in your organisation and they're not necessarily people who you see as in the hierarchy above you. Mm -hmm. You, There's a lot of learning you can learn from people within your own Mm organisation who can shed an interesting light on something um, from from the way that they do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that I would say is, and I'm really big and keen on this, is manage by walking around. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I... I find it completely restorative when I've got a problem that I can't solve and I go, no, I'm going to walk the floor mm-hmm. and talk to all the staff. And the feedback I get from that, because that, you know, as you go through the organisation, as you grow in your own career, 
you, you don't imagine, well, hopefully my ego's not too big, so I don't imagine that, that, that I've gone too far. But to some of the beginners in the organisation, mm. a conversation and a bit of encouragement from the chief executive or an executive director mm. is all that they need for that day. Mm-hmm. And the more of that that we do, the more we strengthen the organisation. Mm-hmm. Well, great words of advice. And uh, John, I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you, Richard. Ta. Well, thanks again for joining us today on the RHA podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with John Kotsis. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic weekend.